Amen. There's some uh, little creative cards on your chairs. They're just there for you to use, to write on, scroll, doodle, uh, throw at me. So just use them as, as you please. They're there. There should be some pens around as well. So if you want to take notes, that'd be great. So, so I said this morning, we uh, have heard about a vision for the church. We will do next week as well. So I thought I would uh, set myself the small challenge of talking to us about a vision for life tonight, which felt like a, a, a small mountain to climb. So uh, that's what we're going to be talking about. So I want to start by uh, putting to you a premise. I want to put to you a premise, and it's this. In Western culture... We have a deep crisis of beauty, a deep crisis of beauty. As humans, we long for beauty. We long to be beautiful. We long to gaze on beautiful things. We long for others to see beauty in us. But the word beauty has been corrupted. And it doesn't take us long, I don't think, when we think about this, to see how it manifests itself in our culture. So in the United States in 2020, there were 15 and a half million cosmetic surgery procedures in one year. Now a good number of those, of course, will be for really good legitimate reasons. I'm not, not arguing with that, but my guess is the vast majority of those may well have been purely out of a motive to improve, so to speak, the way people look. That totaled almost $17 billion being spent on cosmetic surgery. 354,000 nose reshapings, quarter of a million facelifts, four and a half million doses of Botox. Shockingly as well, 92% of that was done on women. And what does that tell us about the pressure that society places on women? I'd say this culture as well is only hyped further by our obsession with celebrities, how they look, whatever they do, we must do, whatever they look like, we must look like, you know, we see these trends. Social media is also a big part of this. So it's something like 95 million photos and videos are posted every day on Instagram. If you follow me, it's mostly just photos and videos of coffee. <laughs> Surprised anyone follows me. But these are all people trying to show their best side, the best selfie, the best angle, show that perfect life. You know, I don't know, take Pinterest, the quest for the perfect home. I once heard a preacher refer to Pinterest as a mammon board. And so I quickly closed it when I, when I heard that. And there's 500 million active monthly users on Pinterest. And again, of course, these things aren't bad in themselves. You know. If you come to our house, you will see a really garishly painted wall that, it, that, that we were inspired in lockdown by, by Pinterest. But when does it cross the line into just an obsession to have the most perfect home, the most beautiful home, so then we can share it and show everyone, you know, all the things that we've achieved? Maybe we convince ourselves that when our body looks a certain way, when our home looks a certain way, that's when we'll be happy. What impact does this have on our mental health, particularly on young people as they're working out who they are, being formed? I read an article in Forbes magazine which interviewed a professor from York University called Jennifer Mills and she said this, research has shown for years that social media has a negative impact on how young women feel about themselves. 
And the article goes on to explain that study after study after study shows that social media is linked to eating disorders, that Instagram is linked to depression, low self-esteem, anxiety. In Holland in 2010, a study on teenagers found social media use was associated with an increased desire for cosmetic surgery. And honestly, this article, the list just went on and on and on and on and on. And so many photos are so manipulated these days. Teenagers and young people are just growing up with such a twisted idea of what humanity should look like. It goes on to apps like Tinder or the equivalent of, again, I'm not saying they're bad in themselves, but it seems to me that it's such a dehumanizing way of approaching dating, just swiping left or right, depending how someone looks. And you might say, I'm just a, a dinosaur. Um, well, maybe I am, because they didn't exist when me and my wife started dating. But yeah, these apps turn over billions and billions of dollars. And it seems to me a lot of it is the monetization of the one night stand, which seems really sad. We have a world that is crying out for beauty, for people to be connected at a deep soul level with other people or with anything. But we are crumbling under that self-imposed pressure and expectation that we've placed on ourselves because the definition of beauty has become corrupted. And amazingly enough, 450 years ago, a, a, a lesser known poet, William Shakespeare, wrote these words, beauty is but a vain and doubtful good, a shining gloss that fadeth suddenly, a flower that dies when first it goes to bud, a brittle glass that's broken presently, a doubtful good, a gloss, a glass, a flower, lost, faded, broken, dead within an hour. He probably wasn't in a positive mood when he, when he wrote that. <laughs> But don't those words just summarize the human condition so well? Put so much effort into beautifying ourselves, achieving a look, a style, and all of it gone so quickly. So why do we long for beauty? Why do we ache? Why do we go to such extreme measures, even surgery, to achieve it? Well, one reason could be this. Classical theology and philosophy tells us that there are four transcendental qualities that are somehow true of everything that exists, and they are oneness, truth, goodness, and beauty. Oneness, truth, goodness, and beauty. So everything that exists on some level bears some of these qualities. But as believers in God, as Christians, we believe that these are only perfected in God only perfected in God. God alone is perfect oneness, perfect truth, perfect goodness, and perfect beauty. And again, some of the ancient mystics, they said that God would brand these four qualities onto the human soul. So we come into the world already knowing beauty, however dimly, already knowing oneness, truth, and goodness, because we are made in God's image. To a certain extent, we know these things already. So we can tell right from wrong. We can recognize truth and goodness because God has branded it on our soul. So we don't necessarily learn these things. We recognize them. Some mystics painted this beautiful picture of the last thing that God did before making us and putting a soul in us was to give it a kiss. Kiss our soul. 
And then our soul and our heart goes through life dimly remembering that kiss, that encounter with the divine, that kiss of perfect love. We yearn for it. We long to be again in the fullness of God's presence. Ronald Rollheiser says this, and that core, that center, that place in our souls where we have been branded with the first principles and where we unconsciously remember the kiss of God before we were born is the real seat of that congenital ache inside us, which in this life can never be fully assuaged. I think that's how you say that. We bear the dark memory, as Henry Nguyen says, of once having been caressed by hands far gentler than we ever meet in this life. We were formed by God. The Bible tells us that God knew us before we were born. Formed in our mother's womb. We have been kissed by the divine and we ache in our soul for the beauty of God. And as we've talked about, as our culture continues to develop, the notion of beauty becomes corrupted. And slowly but surely any sense of of wonder or awe gets pushed out or to one side. Systems and processes reign. Everything has an explanation. Everything has an answer. And even when we place ourselves in front of things that should be wondered at, we so often end up observing them through the screen of our phone. That obsession with posting every moment of our life on social media, or you stood in an amazing concert, and everyone's got their, got their phones out filming it stood in an incredible view and everyone's trying to get themselves in the shot to take a selfie. So if we lose that sense of wonder and awe, that yearning for beauty, you remove what we were made to do and that is stand in awe and wonder of God. Abraham Joshua Heschel was an amazing Jewish rabbi and he said this, as civilization advances, the sense of wonder almost necessarily declines. Such decline is an alarming symptom of our state of mind. Mankind will not perish for want of information, but only for want of appreciation. The beginning of our happiness lies in the understanding that life without wonder is not worth living. What we lack is not a will to believe, but a will to wonder. Do you feel that ache inside of you? Do you sense that deep down in your soul you were kissed by the divine? And that dark memory lives inside of you. You yearn to again be in the presence of God, to walk with him in the garden like Adam and Eve did. How does that manifest in your life? Maybe you've resonated with some of the cultural ills that I've spoken about. The pressure to look a certain way, appear a certain way, be a certain way. So often those pressures follow us wherever we go because they're right here in our phone, in our pocket. So how can we quench this thirst, this thirst for beauty, for wonder, this thirst for goodness? Well, I think the Bible gives us an answer in one of my Favorite verses, maybe even a life verse. It's Psalm 27.4 says this. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Amazing verse. That English phrase, I have asked, only occurs one other time in the Old Testament in my ESV translation, and that's in 1 Samuel when Hannah uh, conceives and bears Samuel, and it says, I have asked for him from the Lord. So like a mother asks the Lord for a child, it's no surprise that this Hebrew word here means to inquire, to beg, to desire. In Jeremiah 6, the same word is used by God when he says, stand by the roads and look, ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. God, we beg you, we beseech you, we have asked, Lord, let us dwell in your house. David continues the emphasis by next saying one thing that he asks and one thing that he seeks. And the Hebrew word for seeking in its primitive root here means to search out by any method, specifically in worship and prayer, to beg, desire, inquire. Psalm 27.8 says, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Are we getting the picture? David says, one thing I have asked, one thing I seek. Asking and seeking, desiring, begging, yearning to be in the presence of God and to dwell with him. Putting aside all distractions, laying down expectations and fears, addressing our sin and our pride, doing everything we can, straining with every sinew in our being to be in the presence of the most wonderful, beautiful saviour. Paul puts it like this, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One thing I ask, one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That sounds like a pretty good vision for life to me. David, of course, was the king of a nation, the leader of a, of a people group, and I imagine he had a long list of worries and pressures, many things competing for his attention and time, people seeking to oust him and bring him down. So you could forgive him for saying, you know, one thing I ask and one thing I seek, Lord, is that you would secure our borders against the enemies that seek to attack us. One thing I ask and one thing I seek is that you sort out our budget deficit that we're having trouble with. Sort out my bad position in the polls, please, God. But no, with everything that's involved in leading a nation, all the pressures of leadership at the highest office, all of his relational pressures, he says the one thing he seeks above all others is to behold the beauty of the Lord. To gaze and behold the beauty of the Lord. What is it about God's beauty? that so encaptured David's attention. What beheld David to such an extent that nothing else came close to his one desire in life? So I ask you, what beholds you tonight? What beholds you? 
what beholds your thoughts, what captures your imagination. The Hebrew word for behold means to gaze at and to perceive, to contemplate. David wanted to gaze at the beautiful face of God. Imagine if one Sunday you came in and I stood up and I said, okay, for the next hour and a half, we're just going to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. What would you think? If you're like me, you'd probably start off with high expectations and then after two minutes, feel like you've been there five hours <laughs> and then work out, is there a way I can sneak out the back? Do we need to ask God for a revolution and a transformation in our desire to behold his beauty? Do we need to ask God to once again captivate us and engross us to the extent where the one thing we ask of him is to behold his beauty and inquire in his presence? Maybe even the concept of God as someone who's beautiful is is alien to you or new. Maybe it's one you struggle with. You know, I've met people who are Christians, but they very much came to faith through logic and they read the Bible and they believed it, and that's brilliant. But maybe if that's you, you struggle with the idea of God being beautiful and alluring. Maybe you're listening to this and you're not a Christian because logic, you feel like logic has actually kept you away from faith. Maybe the God you have been told about before is not a beautiful God, but a condemning God or a judgmental God, a distant God, but not beautiful. But let me say this. Jesus is the most beautiful person you can ever meet. Jesus is the most beautiful person ever. And if we turn our eyes to him, he will captivate us like nothing else. Like nothing else. If we turn our eyes from all the things that hold our gaze, the worries, the stresses, the things that feel so important in the moment, but in context of eternity, are just nothing. Behold his beauty. Just before Christmas, and sad to say that uh, my uncle passed away from, from COVID. He had spent a couple of weeks in intensive care, and uh, his life ebbed away. And he was a pastor, just like, like my dad. They were brothers. He was an amazing man of God. He led some, some brilliant churches like St. Andrew's Chorley Wood. And uh, I learned at the funeral, actually, that he uh, had been friends with John Wimber, which I never knew, which is amazing. He was one of my, my heroes and a man I aspire to be like and he was just a man saturated in the wonder of God and he could find wonder in anything the most simple of things at the funeral someone told a story that sometimes they'd be sat in the pub with my uncle and he would just shout out glory and trumpets really loud in the middle of the pub and no one quite knew what it meant or why he did it but they just thought it was just a heavenly declaration of the goodness of life even when sipping a pint and eating some Nobby's nuts. He was a man so aware of the beauty of Jesus and the glory of God. 
And his, his funeral was so difficult, but for me and the, and the days after, it felt like a moment where God said to me, what do you want the vision for your life to be? What do you want the vision for your life to be? And as I prepared this talk, I was actually drawn to some words that he wrote about this very psalm and this verse. And I'm going to read them to you. So this is my uncle David speaking. What caused David to be so dedicated? Why was he so focused on worshipping in the presence of the Lord so intently? The answer is unusual for our day, but it was the beauty of God himself that was his fixed focus. It was his uncreated beauty, his indescribable splendor, his glorious majesty, his unfathomable love, and his incomprehensible grandeur. Do you ever think of the beauty of Christ? There is scarcely anything that is excellent, beautiful, pleasant, or profitable which is not used in scripture to describe Christ. He is called a lion for his great power and utter conquest. He's called a lamb for his great love and pity and his humble compassion. He's called bread and water for the spiritual refreshment he gives. He's the true vine because all of his branches, you and I, receive our very life from him. He's called rose and lily because he's transcendentally wonderful. We know him as the bright and morning star because he's the dawning light in our lives. And he's termed the son of righteousness because his pure beams of holy love have reconciled us to the Father. Think but a moment of him. Reflect briefly on him, and our hearts' affections are warmed, our wills are strengthened, our eyes light up. He's not only the desire of the nations, but he's our chief delight. Christ is beautiful because he is the highest, He is higher than all the kings and queens of history, all the emperors, all the celebrities. He's higher than the heavens and higher than the highest of angels. All are like worms before him. All the nations of the earth mere drops in a bucket before him. He knows everything and there is no limit to his knowledge. His wisdom is perfect and none can circumvent him. His power is infinite and none can resist him. He is immense, awe-inspiring. He is inexhaustibly brilliant. There is no dimming or fading of his glory. He is the saviour, the merciful, gracious saviour before whom even eternity is too short to sing his praise. He found us alone, broken, improperly dressed, so to speak, so in his infinite goodness he became our righteousness and he clothed himself with us. What do we find as we dwell in him? Grace, grace, grace you see as we dwell beholding as David did we become like what we behold and we gain a new perspective this is the way to stoke your love for Christ heave your heart into your mouth and praise Christ for all his perfections offer up a sacrifice of praise tell him you do not feel like worshipping but you're jolly well going to think more and more about your saviour and less and less about yourself I want to lose my heart to Christ. Day after day after day.
I figure I was created to be engrossed by him. I think he wants me to be enamored and thrilled by him. Who he is, no less than what he does. What would it be like to be utterly enthralled by the immensities of his character or enraptured by his ways? I want to be excited by Christ, held in awe before his face. I want to be astounded and absorbed by the depths of wisdom and love I find in him. I want to be agog at the work in my life of his. I want to be staggered by all the ways he leads me and still I want more of him and still there is more of him for me to know and more of him for me to enjoy and contemplate. Because Christ is infinite, because he's the chief of thousands upon thousands, I want to be found wrapped in his presence, intent upon everything he does. It seems to me that Christ stands before me in his beauty and I am amazed there are folk who think I shouldn't be electrified and captivated by such a vision. How could I not be? How could we not be? Have you lost your heart to Christ? Do you need to lose your heart to Christ again? Maybe for the first time. Do you feel excited by him, engrossed by him, captivated by him? Well, there's always an opportunity to receive more. The great if the band could come up and we're gonna move into some response. And as we do, I want to end with a, a story from Greek mythology. Don't, don't worry, I haven't. Uh, <laughs> and it's the contrasting tales of Ulysses and Jason of the Argonauts. So on their journeys, they both had to sail past some rocks. And on these rocks were some demons called the, Sir the Sirens. And you may well have heard of them before. And they used to sing the most beautiful song and that would often bewitch sailors who would be drawn towards their song and then their boats would be dashed on the awful rocks and they would die. Ulysses thought he could resist this song so he told his men to plug their ears with wax so they would not hear the bewitching song but he with his big ego wanted to hear the full range of the song so he had himself lashed to the mast so he could experience the full horror of the sirens' voices. And he nearly went mad with desire. But when it came to Jason's turn to sail by these rocks, he came up with a different idea. No one would have their ears plugged. No one would be lashed to a mast. Instead, he asked Orpheus, an amazing singer and lyre player, to play a better tune, a more beautiful tune. A song that would turn the hearts of the sailors toward it and away from the song of the sirens. Because Jason was convinced that the sirens would not enchant them because they would be captivated by the more beautiful song that Orpheus played. And he was right. 
they sailed through the rocks, ignoring the sirens. And all the while, they were captivated by the more beautiful song of Orpheus. Why don't we uh, stand in this moment as we begin to respond? What are the beautiful or so-called beautiful songs of culture that sound so sweet to you right now that you can feel yourself being allured to them? What are those songs that woo us but actually bring destruction with them? And instead, as a vision for life, could we instead fill our minds, our hearts, our lives, our homes with the more beautiful song of Christ? One thing we seek and one thing we ask is to behold the beauty of Jesus. And as we do that, all competing songs, all competing beauty will be pushed out and we'll be left in awe and wonder in the presence of our Savior. Let's choose to lose our hearts to Christ all over again, to fall before him in fascination and breathless worship. Father, we pray in this moment that you would reveal yourself evermore to us, Father. We want to see your beauty, Jesus, and your glory, Father. It is what we see, Jesus. You're so worthy, Jesus. You're so worthy. So beautiful, so engrossing. Would you come? Come, Holy Spirit, increase your presence.